Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Methodologies podcast, where every fortnight I invite you to join me on a deep dive into the stories behind the papers we publish in the journal. I've been incredibly lucky to be joined by an amazing collection of guests, from living legends to rising stars, and of course, you wonderful listeners. So if you haven't hit subscribe yet, then please do, but not before listening to this latest episode. It's as easy as ABC D3. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to welcome two great collaborators whose partnership at the ICANN School of Medicine has been incredibly fruitful. They're also excellent science communicators and often publicize their work with fantastic tutorials on social media. They are Dr. Pablo Rania Robles and Dr. Sander Hodson. Pablo and Sander, hello. Hi, James. Hi, James. Thanks for having us. <laughs> You're very welcome. So today we're talking about your paper, The Peroxisomal Transporter ABCD3 Plays a Major Role in the Hepatic Dicarboxylic Fatty Acid Metabolism and Lipid Homeostasis. Um, now I'm sort of familiar with ABCD1, and I know that's associated with X-linked adrenalocodystrophy. Does that knowledge help me here at all? It certainly does, James. ABCD3 belongs to the same family of ABC transporters as ABCD1 does. ABCD3 and ABCD1, together with ABCD2, belong to the subclass D of ABC transporters, which are localized in the peroxisomes, except the fourth member, which is ABCD4 and is localized in the ER membrane. They receive their name, ABC transporters, because they bind ATP. So ABC stands for ATP binding cassette. The energy obtained by the hydrolysis of ATP is then used to drive the transport of different substrates across the peroxisomal membrane. Indeed, I'm very glad that you asked about ABCD1 because I actually did my PhD studying the pathophysiology of ESC-linked adrenoleucodystrophy a disease caused by ABCD1 mutations, which leads to the accumulation of toxic very long-chain fatty acids. And this study is quite special for me, as I always wonder during my PhD about the functions of ABCD3, probably the lesser-known peroxisomal ABC transporter. When we started this project, what we knew is that ABCD3 is a peroxisomal transporter which, by the way, is also known as PMP70, in case someone from the audience sees that name in the literature. And the substrates of ABCD3 had only been studied in vitro in a study that suggested that long-chain unsaturated fatty acids, long-branch-chain fatty acids, such as prestanic acid, and long-chain dicarboxylic acids were the preferred substrate for ABCD3. We then decided to start this project aiming to discover the physiological functions of ABCD3, which were not known, and its substrates in vivo. Okay, so obviously you've talked about ABCD1 and, and that being the one that you knew. There's obviously quite a recognisable, I think, phenotype, people would agree, that's associated with that. Is there a distinct disease phenotype for ABCD3 disease? Certainly, there is currently only one patient known that was reported in 2014 by my colleague Sasha Ferdinandes and her co-workers. This patient presented with hepatosplenomegaly and severe liver disease. The liver disease in this patient was progressive and by the age of four this patient had advanced liver cirrhosis associated with hepatopulmonary syndrome requiring oxygen supplementation and needing a liver transplant. 
Unfortunately, this patient died five days after the liver transplant. In this patient, bile acids were all increased, but there was a marked accumulation of C27 bile acid intermediate, which suggests that there is a paroxysomal defect. It is known that the proxosomal fatty acid oxidation machinery is needed to convert these immature C27 bile acid intermediates into mature C24 bile acids. So follow-up diagnostic analysis in the lab of Sasha Ferdinandese convincingly showed that there was a defect in ABCD3 in this patient. Dicarboxylic acids, however, were not studied in this patient. So that's a unique opportunity that we had by using this new mouse model. So you're talking about ABCD3 and the, its role in dicarboxylic acid metabolism. I must confess, it's something that I see on urine organic acid reports. I haven't thought about it that much. I'm sorry. Um, what's its relevance here then? Well, as I mentioned before, it was already suggested in the in vitro study from 2014 that dicarboxylic acid are one of the preferred substrates of ABCD3. And moreover, we recently published a paper about the function of EHHADH, another peroxisomal protein, in which we showed that ABCD3 is essential for the beta oxidation of a long-chain dicarboxylic acid, hexadecane dioic acid, or C16-DCA, in human HIC293 cells. I think it is important to note that dicarboxylic acid are formed by a metabolic pathway called omega oxidation. This pathway has been proposed as a rescue pathway for fatty acid oxidation defects. The reason behind that is that dicarboxylic acids are metabolized in the peroxisome. So, for example, long-chain fatty acids that cannot be metabolized in the mitochondria of long-chain FAOD patients could be metabolized in the peroxisomes, obtaining medium-chain fatty acids that can be metabolites in the mitochondria of those long-chain fatty acid oxidation deficient patients. This, of course, is very appealing to us, but it is crucial that first we understand the function of ABCD3 as the proposed peroxisomal transporter of long-chain dicarboxylic acids. We decided to start the study of the role of ABCD3 in an unbiased way. To do that, we performed and targeted metabolomics in the liver of ABCD3 knockout mice. And we compared the data to the metabolome of wild-type mice that were litter mates. The results were striking, as long-chain decarboxylic acids were among the metabolites that were more increased in ABCD3 knockout livers. Some of these long-chain DCAs were increased more than a hundredfold in ABCD3 knockout livers. We were, of course, very happy with this data, and we wanted to corroborate the role of ABCD3 in DCA metabolism. And that's why we measured dicarboxylic acids in the urine of these mice. We found a pronounced medium-chain dicarboxylic aciduria in ABCD3 knockout mice, which suggests there is some type of defect in DCA metabolism. And moreover, we established liver slice cultures in the lab that allow us to investigate the metabolism of any certain molecule in a piece of mouse liver that is metabolically active. So with this system and using isotope label DCAs, we found a puzzling result that was that C12 DCA, a medium chain decarboxylic acid 
was metabolized in ABCD3 knockout livers. As we state in the paper, this result was unexpected, but suggests that DCAs are being metabolized in the mitochondria when ABCD3 is not functional. I think I sort of followed that. I mean, you're talking about mouse models. These, these come up time and time again. How can we be sure that the, the mouse model translates to human metabolism? I think I will take that question because I've been working with mice for a long time now, and I think we can still learn a lot from these small rodents. But let me start with saying that mice are not small humans. But mice represent a very valuable system to model human metabolism and disease. But in order to be able to interpret the data from the mouse, it's very important that we understand the similarities and differences in the process that we aim to model. But overall, metabolic processes are very similar between mice and humans. But sometimes small differences can be noted. But in order to understand the metabolic function of a protein or a pathway, transgenic mice such as knockout mouse models are excellent. And I would like to add on to the previous discussion, dicarboxylic acid metabolism in general is understudied, so we don't know a lot about the physiological roles about dicarboxylic acid metabolism. And I think these mouse models, such as the ABCD3 knockout mouse and also the EHHDH knockout mouse model, are excellent to start to address what is the relevance of dicarboxylic acid metabolism in mammalian physiology. You know, understanding the metabolic role of a protein is one thing. Modeling the pathophysiology associated with a metabolic defect, that's another thing. More often, we see that despite all the similarities between human and mice, the phenotypes associated with a metabolic defect can differ substantially between mice and humans. Basically, we're perturbing metabolic homeostasis, and the response of an organism to this perturbation can diverge. For example, quite often we note that a gene knockout in the mouse produces no phenotype or only very mild disease, with the human counterpart may not be mild at all. But in my opinion, trying to understand these differences brings us closer to understanding what's going on in the human disease. And again, I think I've been seeing a lot of different mouse models over the last 20 years, and really, I think they're very valuable and we can learn a lot from these little animals. And are we able to make better mouse models now than we used to be able to, or are we yes, still stuck with the same limitations? Definitely. So classically, people would use either transgenic models where you overexpress a specific protein or you would knock out a specific gene, so the protein function would be completely perturbed. And of course, that can model a human disease quite well, because in an inborn error of metabolism, we often see loss of function mutation, so a knockout mouse model can be a good model. But of course, this is not always the case because, you know, a lot of patients have missense mutations that allow for some residual activity, and that's not very well modeled in a knockout model. But now with the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing, it's very easy to actually make the same missense mutation also in the mouse. So that will enable us to better model uh, the human disease. So I think from a uh, mouse modeling perspective, CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing has really uh, made making these new mouse models much more feasible and cheaper. And of course, there are all kinds of other options to study pathophysiology that you could never do in a human, like knocking out a gene specifically in one tissue to really drill down on a specific mechanism. But, you know, that's going a maybe a little bit too much into detail for today. But yes, there's a lot of different options to study these mice in detail.
Okay. I mean, there is so much data that you've kind of harvested within this paper, and, and I really don't know what the best way to start with that is. Um, what do you think the, the big takeaways are from all of this? We think that one of the big takeaway messages, besides the alteration in dicarboxylic acid metabolism, is the novel role that we report for ABCD3 in hepatic lipid homeostasis. I think it's important to highlight that ABCD3 knockout mice present lipodystrophy, enhance hepatic cholesterol synthesis, and decrease hepatic de novo lipogenesis. And altogether, these results highlight the important metabolic role of peroxisomes and guarantees further research on this topic. Um, obviously, your work raises some new insights into investigation of peroxisomal dicarboxylic acid metabolism, and you've hopefully highlighted better ways to diagnose ABCD3 disease if it's present. As a paediatrician, I'm seeing a lot of children uh, with liver disease, so certainly liver disease in children and young people in the form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or steatosis. I, I imagine adult clinicians see for more than I do. When should one go looking for a rarer cause and start doing some extended tests in these people? Well, I think that's a very interesting discussion and I really love to talk with a pediatrician like you about that because you, of course, see these patients and we're just working in the laboratory. But I think a genetic cause should be considered in every case with an early onset of severe liver disease. Of course, there are many genetic causes for liver disease other than peroxisomal defect. So a genetics first approach with a liver disease gene panel or whole exome sequence is probably the best scenario. But then after that, if there is a potential variant in a proxisomal gene, such as ABCD3 or one of the proxisomal biogenesis factors, a plasma test for bile acid intermediates, the C27 bile acid intermediates, should certainly be on the list for confirmatory analysis. What I think is interesting is how often do you think there could be a genetic cause for the patients that you see in the clinic that present with liver disease? I mean, I must confess that the ones where we see it, by and large, we see it in a background of a young person with high BMI and, and poor diet. And I, I think you're right. When you see liver disease in a young person where they are much younger, certainly sort of under 10 years of age and their body habitus is not what we typically associate with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I hope people would be thinking more broadly about the, the differential there and saying, well, this isn't right. And certainly having seen a urea cycle disorder or two present in that way, you always want people to have a an open mind about unexplained abnormal liver function in, in young people. I mean, I've seen the liver disease gene panels that they're offering in different diagnostic services, and they include a lot of different genes that we know. But also, I think the milder cases can present quite late and still have a pretty strong genetic component to them. So I think we may underestimate how much uh, liver diseases actually do have a genetic cause. That's interesting. Obviously, you were advocating a, a genetics-first approach to your diagnostic pathways. It's that argument as to do we lead with genetics and confirm with biochemistry, or do we lead with biochemistry and metabolomics and confirm with genetics? So it, it seems easier to go genetics first in this case. Well, I'm just basically doing what the field seems to gravitate towards, I think. I mean, I'm actually a biochemist by training, and so, of course... You know, you would love to see it otherwise, but I think it seems that it's just easier to go genetics first and then based on what variants you find, you'll go with confirmatory testing. And I guess you want to, you go, want to get your gene on the panel then if you're talking about people using panels to diagnose these. So you need the, this awareness around 
um, ABCD3 disease to get it on a panel so it's been considered? Well, it's, so that was why I was checking on that one panel that I checked, ABCD3 was included. So that actually made me happy to see that. <laughs> and does this, do these insights, do they, do they help around treatment? Do they give us new ways to manage uh, liver disease if we were to find that this was the problem? Probably, but I have to admit at this point, we do not know that yet. But what I do know is that there are ongoing studies that evaluate the use of cholic acid as a treatment for liver disease associated with Zellweger spectrum disorders. These studies are not finished yet, so we don't know yet what the outcome is going to be. So cholic acid is one of the primary bile acids. And if this works well in Zellweger spectrum disorders, then I would expect that an ABCD3 deficient patient could also benefit from this treatment because I do think that a lot of the problems we see in the liver are related to the accumulation of the uh, bile acid intermediates, the proxosomal bile acid intermediates. Well, if it does work, we'd have to hope someone doesn't um, round the price up like they have with um, chinodeoxycholic acid in uh, uh, CTX, which became exorbitantly expensive when it became a treatment. Um, I think that's part of the problem, why the studies with cholic acids are not finished yet. And that also has to do with industry again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to manage what we say. Um, I, I did say at the start that the, the work between the two of you, it's been a really productive collaboration. Um, and I've certainly of Nate, I've noticed that if my Twitter sources are correct, that Pablo has now left New York. Are you two looking at solo careers? Do you think the band will ever get back together? Of course, I would love to keep the band together one way or another. I mean, I recently moved to Copenhagen as I think it was a step needed to focus on my career as an independent researcher. But I have learned so much and been so grateful for this fantastic team that we have created together that I think it would be great if we can maintain long-term collaborations, allowing us to study the fascinating world of metabolism. Yes, I agree. It would be great if we get a chance to work together again in the future with Pablo as an independent principal investigator. Well, I, I hope that I'll have the chance to speak with one or both of you again um, before too long about whatever's coming next. If listeners would like to read that paper, read this paper even, you can just click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal webpages and search for ABCD3. And if you'd like to hear more from us, then type JMD Podcast into a search engine. Uh, Sander and Pablo, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>